0: This is Politics Media 101, I'm Jeff Browning. Congressman Tony Gonzalez is a Republican from Texas who served in the U.S. Navy and who represents a very unique district. Specifically, he represents nearly 800 miles of the U.S.-Mexico border. That's a long way with a lot of different communities. His voters span 29 counties, two time zones, and almost 150 zip codes. This gives him a very unique purview into border security, immigration issues, and what it's actually like, not only for Americans who live near the border, but for those who seek to come across it, who are often fleeing very difficult situations and who carry the American dream with them across the border, coming here to seek a better life, to contribute their ideas and participate in our economy, something that's often spoken about in political terms that don't necessarily reflect economic reality. We talked to Congressman Gonzalez about all of this and more, and we hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as we did. As a reminder, like all of our episodes, this is an edited version of a much longer conversation that was taped live with audience questions. For information on how to join us and past episodes, please visit our website, pm101.live. Please also take two seconds to subscribe on whichever streaming service you're using right now so you don't miss our next episode on Monday featuring Michael Kugelman, who's an expert on Pakistan, Afghanistan, and India's relationships with the United States at the Wilson Center. Without any further ado, let's roll the tape. We hear a lot of
1: politicians talk about immigration from both sides of the aisle, but practically none have your perspective where you're living in a border community. What does living in a border community bring to the debate of immigration and how are these perspectives different than the familiar arguments that we hear at the national level from people who maybe don't have your perspective?
2: Honestly, I tell anybody that is operating in politics or in the policy space is you shouldn't be legislating on immigration and border security if you've never been to the border. And it's important for you to go and see it firsthand because it really changes your perspective of things. And I also think it's important, honestly, to come back and see multiple facets of it because every acre is different than the next – you know, I represent over 800 miles of southern border. It's about 42% of the southern border. And it is very different. You know, the the communities in and around El Paso are night and day different than the communities in and around the Big Bend sector or Del Rio and Eagle Pass, which is very much in the spotlight right now.
1: You just made me think of something. There was a big kerfuffle when VP Harris went on Lester Holt's show and wouldn't explain when she was going to visit the border. I think that President Biden gave her the Northern Triangle in her portfolio. I'm wondering if she's made it over to your district, if she's reached out to you, and if there's been any type of discussion with her, maybe not her, with her office on what's going on, not only on your border, but also the Northern Triangle.
2: You know, that's been one of the, I would say, most frustrating things Because one, here I'm a member of Congress, but I've really I've tried to do less of the rhetoric and just beating up the administration all the time, and I've tried to have more of a conversation. Border security, immigration is not a new topic for any president, and I'd argue every president since the founding of this country has had to deal with these issues. And early on, I mean, even before I was sworn in, I was reaching out to the administration. And going, hey, I want to work with you. Like, look, I want to find solutions to some of these problems. So to your question, no, the White House has not engaged with me at all. I'm talking zero. And it's very frustrating on that end. I have a little bit of engagement with uh, Secretary Mayorkas. But very, very minimal amount. And it shouldn't be that way. Because like I said, I'm not trying to just beat up the administration and blame them for everything that's wrong in the world. I'm genuinely trying to work with them. But they've turned a blind eye. But you know what? They haven't turned a blind eye to just me. They've turned a blind eye to Democrats as well. You know, Henry Cuellar is my neighbor to the South, Vicente Gonzalez. You know, they won't listen to any of us. So that's the part that is, I would say, the most frustrating.
1: I used to work for a bomb thrower. Tim from he was a representative for the 1st District of Kansas. But anyways, Mm -hmm. very big agriculture district. I would then talk to the farmers, the employers, and they would tell me, Justin, we need comprehensive immigration reform. There are not enough Americans to take these jobs, whether they're well-paying in the beef packing plant or they're in the fields. Americans will not take these jobs. We need immigrants to come in, be legalized, and take these jobs. So I'm wondering, on a larger scale, Congressman, one of the anti-immigrant, the rhetoric is that these people will take Americans' jobs. And can you walk us through whether that's true, not true, and how you view that
2: question? Yeah, no, it's, it's uh, certainly not accurate at all. And, and I argue that you can be both in support of border security and immigration reform. It doesn't have to be either or. And I think for too long, we've seen this either or camp. You're for a closed border and not any immigrants, or you're for an open border, and you welcome everybody under the sun. To your point, there are vacancies, there are work shortages in every industry. It's no longer just agriculture and and construction and retail. I mean, it's every industry across the board. And I think there's an opportunity where you have people that want to come, and I, you know, I, I often reference it, it's the American dream, and people want to come and live the American dream. Well, guess what? The American dream doesn't always start in America. That's what's so special about it. We, we should want people to come here and strive for that.
3: So, Congressman, this is very much to the point that you were making about worker shortages across industries. So we've got some data here from two economic researchers at the University of California, Davis, that shows that right now across industries in the U.S. economy, we have a two million person worker shortfall. So there are two million jobs looking for workers that cannot find those workers. And the data also show that if immigration trends from before the pandemic continued as they were, we would have two million more Foreign born workers in the United States now than we do. So, this is almost an emergency. And it appears as though the immigration shortfall accounts for almost the entire worker shortfall that we have in our economy, which is leading to inflation and supply chain problems and all these other things that we're frustrated with. So, it seems as though this is a real emergency and it requires some quick solutions. What can we do now? to encourage more foreign workers to come to the United States, even in the short term, to try to fix this shortfall?
2: Yeah, it's a good point. And, you know, one of the things that I've been advocating for is Congress to lead again. And I think for too long, you have Congress punt to the executive branch and blame President Trump for everything that's wrong in life or blame President Biden for everything that's wrong in life. And Congress has gotten accustomed to that, is to go, it's not our fault, you know, it's the administration's fault, because it's the easy thing to do. You can get reelected 100 times running on that platform. But it's time for Congress to lead again. Congress is a equal branch of government, and there is a role to play, regardless of who's in the White House. I brought the, the chief of Border Patrol, Raul Ortiz, to the Hill, and I had four Democrats and four Republicans. You know, I look. I'm a new member. I'm in charge of nothing. You know, I don't determine what makes it on the floor for votes. I don't determine what hearings we have. But I started thinking, I was like, look, man, but I'm a member of Congress and I can use that to put things together. So we just had a roundtable. And honestly, there was no cameras there. There was no press. There was no grandstanding. It was just members, their staff. We had a plus one staff, and it was the chief of Border Patrol. And we sat down, and I go, hey, for an hour, let's just have an open discussion. Four Ds, four Rs. Let's just let it fly, ask the questions, and and have a real discussion. And I thought it was real fruitful. And honestly, just the fact that I had four Democrats in the room I thought was important. On that same breath, I had breakfast with the uh, U.S. ambassador to Mexico, Ambassador Salazar, And the Mexican ambassador to the U.S. maybe two weeks ago, week and a half ago. And the the thing that upset me was there was only two members of Congress in that room. It was myself and it was Lou Carrera from California. I mean, there should be two dozen members in there that having this conversation, talking about security, talking about trade, talking about immigration, talking about the labor shortages. And there just isn't.
1: The U.S. has reinstated a controversial Trump-era migration policy on the orders of the Supreme Court after President Biden tried to scrap it. The Remain in Mexico program orders asylum seekers to stay on Mexican territory while they wait for their applications to be processed. Inhumane, counterproductive and a moral and national shame. That is how President Biden... That is how President Biden described the Trump-era immigration policy called Remain in Mexico when he was a presidential candidate. Now his administration is bringing it back. Not because they want
0: to, they insist, but because the Supreme Court gave them no choice. But what is causing people to take on this dangerous journey in the first place? And what's being done to address the root causes of this migration?
1: So just to quickly follow up there, and I do have a question about the evolution of the GOP, but I'm wondering, you're a border community. So any type of next comprehensive immigration bill obviously is going to have to have border security, like you already mentioned. But I'm wondering, what are the types of policies that you would be championing and pushing for that would make legal immigration? easier that would help us fill this work shortage that we have? Would it be increasing the number that we let in? Would it be some way to streamline the process? Do you have any policy solutions to what appears to be an extremely broken system on
2: every end? Yeah. I mean, look, work visas make sense to me. I mean, people want to come in, they're looking for a better life. And we have these shortages. I mean, let's match the two up. We absolutely need to know who's coming into our country. We absolutely have to do that. But if they want to come and live the American dream, then we should welcome them with open arms. We should crank up the work visa process. And the other thing I'd argue, too, man, people aren't coming over here in droves. And I can give you an example of it. I mean, people aren't coming over here and going, man, I can't wait to vote for Joe Biden. You know, I can't wait to to help the, the Democrats, you know, uh, keep the majority. I I don't see that. What I see is people going, I can't wait for a better opportunity at life. So I think there's a way like if we can have a real conversation to go, hey, how do we separate the politics from the policy? And how do we go? Maybe we don't include citizenship or maybe we don't include access to voting because especially on the Republican side, there's this narrative that, hey, all these people are going to come over and they're going to prevent us from having political power man, at the end of the day, this is all about political power. And you've seen both parties use that and both parties be afraid of it, if you will, or try to engage in it. What if we were to take that out of the equation and go, let's say people can't vote for X amount of time or whatever it is, we could kind of hash that conversation and just go, hey, if you want to come here to work, we have an opportunity for you. I think that would be incredible. I mean, in a real number, not what we're doing now, but in a real number, a real program. And I also think it would prevent these people, these innocent people from being exploited by these cartels. So it's Christmas. I'll tell you this one short story and then I'll turn it back over. So it's Christmas day and I served 20 years in the military. I mean, I've been deployed more holidays than you can count. And one of the things that I wanted to do was Christmas Eve, pretty much at midnight, our family celebrates Christmas. We open up all our presents, and that's our day. And then Christmas Day is kind of our rest day, if you will. That's our tradition. And I asked my family, I was like, hey, can we continue to do that? But instead of me resting that day, can I spend it in the district? I want to spend it with Border Patrol agents. And I did that, and they allowed me to do that. I spent all day. I mean, I left San Antonio at 3 a.m. My first stop was Eagle Pass at 6 a.m. We visited six different spots. My last spot was 8 p.m., and I visited six different border stations. And one of the things that I wanted to highlight was these border patrol agents. Hey, man, I know you're working 24-7, 365, whether it's Christmas or Tuesday, you're rolling up your sleeves and coming to work. And I was thinking, hey, it's Christmas Day. You know, maybe it's going to be a little bit lighter, you know, kind of a, maybe it just it won't be as much happening. And it was as busy as I've ever seen it. And there's two things I was in the Del Rio sector, two takeaways that this story doesn't get shared enough. One, I saw a border patrol agent. There was about 60 migrants that were getting processed. 60. It's eight o'clock in the morning, man. It's just like full blown. And I saw this border patrol agent that just looked tired. I mean, he was worn out. He was tired. He was asking these questions. He was going through the process of kind of getting these, these migrants checked in and he looked tired. So in one lens, I see a tired agency that is just worn down. In another lens, I saw this woman, maybe in her late 20s, and uh, and she's gripping her son. He had to be maybe three or four years old. She's gripping his hand as tight as can be. And I'm thinking, I'm just looking at that little boy. I've got six kids. And I'm looking at that little boy, and I'm going, oh, man, I have no idea what that little boy has gone through to get to this moment. And they had no idea that it was Christmas Day. Christmas just happened to be the day they made it to the United States. I'll tell you that story to go – you're right, man. The whole system is broken. And everybody that's involved in that system has been sucked up into this chaos.
1: Congressman, for a lot of our listeners, especially if they're not following politics from the history of things, they might not know that Ronald Reagan, and in 1980, George Bush and Ronald Reagan were on the debate stage, basically debating who could be more liberal with their immigration policy. I don't mean liberal Democrat. I mean liberalism, getting more people into the US, and that was on the backdrop of the Soviet Union. But from 1980 on 1986, Reagan had a comprehensive immigration bill. The father of modern day conservatism had a comprehensive immigration bill that had a pathway to citizenship, amnesty, whatever you want to call it. And then from there, we now have President Trump, who in 2017 endorsed a bill that wouldn't provide amnesty, but it would actually cut the amount of legal immigrants into the US in half. So I'm not asking you to talk about President Trump or anything like that. I'm wondering more so, How did the Republican Party evolve over the last 30 so odd years to go from wanting more legal immigrants to trying to cut them in half? And how can we reverse that trend?
2: I just hosted 13 members in Del Rio about three weeks ago. And one of the takeaways was I'm telling the group after when they're all Republicans, I'm telling the group afterwards is, hey, you know, that sheriff you were talking to? Yeah, he's a Democrat. You know that business leader you were talking to? Yeah, he's a Democrat. Oh, by the way, the county judge, the mayor, all Democrats. So I say it's beyond a party. That's the part where, and I won't beat up the administration too much, but this is the part that they're losing. They're not realizing, they're thinking that this is a Republican issue. It's not. To me, I look at it and I go, part of my duty is to make sure that the Republican Party is eyes wide open. And we're not just a rhetoric party, but we're a party that has policy and solutions, like you mentioned, you know, Reagan and Bush and, and others that have come before, even in Trump, you know, that had some of these solutions to it. But it starts to me, it starts in Congress. President Biden introduced his new budget proposal. Now, the White House says the budget will generate revenue and reduce the federal deficit. In order to accomplish those things you just mentioned, President Biden is proposing a tax
1: increase on the wealthiest Americans and on corporations. But we're already hearing opposition from some lawmakers on Capitol Hill. We're going to turn to the defense piece of the proposal specifically. Now, we already know the White House would like to allocate... We already know the White House would like to allocate $715 billion to the Pentagon in fiscal 2022. Top Pentagon officials have already signaled they'd like to, with an eye to China, shed unneeded weapons to spend more on forward-looking technologies, things like hypersonics, artificial intelligence. Now you couple that with a flatlining budget, which means the need to do more with less in general. I believe the budget was released on Monday, the president's budget, which we all know, we're amongst friends, is just a messaging document. But from the two perspectives of, we have to deal with both Russia and China, does that mean we need more Navy spending? Because China's uh, far away from us, uh, there's a lot of water in between us. And if it does mean we need more spending in our Navy, is that more nuclear submarines? Is that aircraft carriers? And then for the intelligence community, What type of funding or support does the intelligence community need as well?
2: Yeah, for defense and intelligence, I think it's all of the above. And I think it's important that we put the resources behind it. I sit on the Appropriations Committee, so I believe in the appropriations process. Look, I'm a Department of Defense guy, but just adding money to the equation doesn't solve the problem. I would love for every agency, the Department of Defense and and intelligence community, to have an inward look. Hey, where is this money going? And it's not about, hey, I need more money. I need more money. It's about what are you doing with that money? And part of that, like I said, Congress has a role to play. Part of that is passing budgets. I mean, you pass a budget, then all of a sudden you're not on these continuous resolutions. The appropriations hearing last year, one of the things I said was, look, China and Russia are a threat, but there is nothing more dangerous to the United States than another continuous resolution. I go back to it. Congress has a role to play, and we need to make sure that we're doing that role. And just adding money to a line item—I don't care if it's for education or healthcare or defense—and going, you know, giving each other high fives and going "mission accomplished"—that doesn't work. We've seen that. And I'll briefly answer your question. We can go to the next one. Is yes, we need submarines. And I was one of the votes when we passed this omnibus to make sure that the uh, Ohio class submarine was funded. Because once you stop the funding, I mean, it's tough to make up that ground, if you will. And I think we need to get ahead with hypersonic missiles. And I think we need to get ahead in space. This is another area. Right now, cyber and space is the future of, of every conflict. Cyber right now is currently the, the battleground. We don't talk about it as much because it's much more sexier to talk about tanks that get destroyed in Ukraine or man pads or some of, you know, some of these things that we can see and feel and touch, but cyber and space is the future. And you have to start investing now if we're going to get ahead of it. And I think part of that is having some disruptors. I think for too long, we've had these traditional stagnant ways of how we do the defense appropriations or the acquisition process. SpaceX and Blue Origin, they've changed the game on things. And I think there's a lot of defense contractors as well that you can bring innovation and you can bring this new model in and you can make sure that America is the most well-trained and prepared for that next level of conflict.
3: Congressman, I want to talk about some of the diplomatic angles India, as we know, are a big focus of U.S. potential partnerships. There's a lot of hope that we can build a close partnership with India, especially since the Bush years with the nuclear agreement. We know that India are part of the Quad. The U.S. have been doing joint military exercises with India, along with Australia and Japan. However, India remained very close to Russia. About half of India's weapons are imported from Russia. The most commonly spoken second language, learned language, in the Indian defense sector is Russian. And we've been reminded of this after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The Indian government are refusing to condemn the Russians for this action. Inside the Indian public, there's been a lot of support for Russia's actions in the Russian media. We're reminded of how close those relationships are and how closely intertwined the defense sectors are. So is this something that we're worried about as we're approaching this partnership, does it significantly hamper our ability to build a real trusting relationship with India, especially one that focuses on defense, this very sensitive sector where India and Russia have such a close legacy and partnership?
2: Man, John, you hit it really well. And a lot of these relationships are very complex. They get muddy very fast, and you have to be able to – and a lot of times they want to know, hey, are you just here today? Like what do you want, right? Are you genuinely committed to having a partnership with us? Are you just using a short time? Are we just using you? It's like this dance, and it's part of like showing your commitment. I'm real close to John Cornyn, senator from Texas, and I was real fortunate he invited me on this trip that we took to India and one of the things I told him, I was like, look, man, I'll carry your bags, dude. I just want to go. and I just want to sit side saddle. But he's like, look, you, you don't have to carry my bags all the time, but um, carry them for a little bit and we'll take you there. And he let everyone on the delegation speak. I will never forget that, man. you know. And, and he let me speak. So here I am speaking directly to Modi. And what are you going to say? And this is what I said. I go, look, partnerships aren't Automatically created, they're not automatically con- assumed. It takes time, it takes energy. And us showing up here shows that we're committed to it. You giving us the time, it was like a Saturday or a Sunday. I mean, you making time on a, a, a weekend shows that you're committed. And I go, I have two questions for you, two areas that, of topic. And one of them, I mentioned cyber. And I go, Look, in the cyber world, there are no boundaries we're all neighbors and we're all fighting in the same space. And oftentimes we have very similar adversaries. And I would love for India and the United States to work more closely together. And his eyes lit up, man. And I go, you know what? And kind of going back to immigration, because it's a good kind of bridge. I go, there's all these resources across the world, gold and, and, and oil and natural gas and and, and all these different things. But to me, there's the, the most valuable resource is people. And the Indian people have found a way that they're you know, technologically savvy. They just, they just are. They go to places. They have a, a, a knack for engineering. And I go, and I think there's a way that the United States needs that. Like, we need this expertise. And I think there's a way for our two countries to work together. He couldn't agree more. We kind of went back and forth. The second thing I mentioned was energy. I go, look, Texas, we have a lot of natural gas and oil. What are your thoughts on our two countries working more closely together on energy? And his eyes pop out of his head again, and he's basically going energy we need energy in order to thrive and and look in India, actually that day, it was the worst smog I've ever seen, and I, apparently there's like a smog calculator. It was at level five thousand. It was bad, and he's thinking, I need natural gas in order to lower my emissions and bring my people forward a little bit. So I covered a lot there. To your point, Russia is in India's backyard. They see them every day. They deal with them every day. We have to show that we're committed there for long term. And then I think you'll see more of these allies come on board.
1: So, Congressman, another partner that we have been there almost since day one, at least since 1994, when Bill Clinton sent an aircraft carrier in between China and Taiwan, is Taiwan. The U.S. made it clear with Ukraine that we were not going to send in troops to defend them, and that made a lot of our partners in Taiwan very, very nervous. Would you support sending in U.S. military forces in the future to defend Taiwan,
2: I mean, the answer is yes. And I think there's a way to do it in this environment without necessarily putting boots on ground. Your question is, hey, are you going to back up Taiwan? So my thought process is, it's never about what it's about. And invading Taiwan, if China invades Taiwan, is it really about them taking Taiwan back? Or what's next? Like, where does it end? And you're seeing that in Ukraine. Like, where does it end? I hate the fact that the United States is... (laughs) has kind of become the world's police. But at the same time, if there's nobody else that fills that void, somebody else will. And those actors that will, they're not peace-loving actors that want, you know, a good climate for everybody and everybody to have equality. No, these are dangerous actors that want to have all the power and control. And I'm talking about China and Russia. So what I'm getting at is if you're going to defend Taiwan or if you're going to defend Ukraine – Yes, you're doing it for them, but it's about much more than just Taiwan.
1: Let's go to the audience. So, we're going to start with Akshob. Akshob, over to you.
0: Congressman, thank you so much for this. I want to talk about a country which is stealing a lot of American resources. I'm not talking about China, I'm talking about Canada. And I've had this conversation with your fellow colleague in Congress, uh, Congressman Crenshaw from Texas, and former Congressman Scott Taylor, that the Canadian immigration system, the points based system, is now. Predominantly filled with a lot of the disenfranchised US immigrant workers, like people who are not getting the H1Bs, not getting the green cards. And all across Silicon Valley, you are seeing signs that says H1B problems move to Canada. And I truly really believe it's a bipartisan issue that's broken, right? From Obama to Trump. How do we want to fix this immigration system from H1B lotteries and the green card backlog, you know, to get back the Silicon Valley thriving? Like because it was built on the back of immigrant workers. So thank you, Congressman.
2: Great, no, uh, thank Akshab for for the questions. And look, man, I never thought about invading Canada and taking it over, but I'm not completely against the idea.
3: Um, <laughs> that's a joke. Well, the that's U.S. Joke. have invaded Canada twice, and we lost <laughs> both times in the American Revolution. Sounds like
1: some war. revenge. Let's. We
3: are zero oh, and two against Canada in military combat.
2: That's not good, man. That's not a good. That's not a good stat. But I mean, to your point on immigration, I think you're right. Like we're missing an opportunity. We're missing an opportunity to tap into the best and the brightest that the world has to offer. You know, I look at the situation in Ukraine and and Russia. I think there's an opportunity where we could kind of almost take the brain trust, if you will, this brain drain from some of these other countries, Russia included, you know, some of these other places, if we had a system in place that would that would welcome them that would have them they could come over through the front door like you said not this broken system that's a that's a lottery with very few numbers or takes years upon and I think that's completely broken from the Russian standpoint last year and this was fiscal year so October of last year there were 4103 Russians that entered the United States illegally through the southern border this year and we're halfway through the fiscal year that numbers already doubled What does that tell you? That tells you Russians are leaving Russia as fast as it can be. I mean, everybody is. So I think if you created a front door, I think we should welcome folks that want to come and, like I said, live the American dream. We got to do it through the front door.
3: Just because Akshov mentioned Scott Taylor, I want everyone here who's listening to this to know that on the day that Russia invaded Ukraine, Scott Taylor was in Belarus, a country that helped facilitate the attack looking to see if he could get a payout from Belarusian oligarchs to lobby the U.S. government against financial sanctions. He was in Belarus in person on the day that Belarus was helping facilitate the attack, seeing if he could get a payout from Belarusian criminals. We are going to go next to Nas. I think this is probably the last question that we'll have time for today. So over to Nas.
1: Thank you, Congressman. Thank you, John and Justin. My question about Russia-India relationship and its impact on us. India is buying discounted oil from Russia, nearly 40%, or $36 per barrel. There are also strong military cooperation. The two are building intercontinental ballistic missiles. India is also stealing our intellectual property. It's not as bad as China, but it is bad enough. So how are we responding to India? Thank you.
2: Yeah, no, thanks for that. And I mean, ultimately, there are no friends in this world. I mean, everybody has an angle and everybody has priorities. And it's just the way the world works. You know, I go back to it. It doesn't have to be either or. For too long, it's, it's either India or Pakistan. You know, it's either Israel or Saudi. It doesn't have to be that way. Cyber, to me, is that key because cyber is in absolutely every aspect of life, whether you're talking security, whether you're talking economics, you name it, you know, healthcare now, I mean, everything, every aspect of life. And I think it's an area that everybody wants to grow and thrive in. And I think it's something the United States can use as a carrot, if you will, to find these partners. One of the things that I've done as a member is I've reached out to as many folks as possible to go. I want to build a relationship to see where this is going. And and we didn't get to talk about it because I know a lot of focus is on Asia and Europe. But Central and South America is extremely important. It's an area that the United States has forgotten about forever. And it's in our backyard. And these are problem sets that directly impact us, like things we've talked about, like border security, like immigration. And I think there's a way that we need to engage again. I met with the ambassador from Costa Rica yesterday yesterday. And nobody is meeting with these people. I mean, here I am, a first-term congressman, and I have met with more ambassadors and leaders from Central and South America than other members. That's wrong. And I think we just need to do a better job overall of of kind of building these relationships out and going, there's a whole lot more to the world than what we see on TV, and how do we kind of build this out? So thank Nas for that question.
1: I do want to ask you the last question. Two questions here. One, I'm curious: what do you want your second committee to be when you folks do retake the House? And I say that as somebody that leans now a little bit left. Um, and then the second question is: what's the last thoughts that you want people to take away from hearing your discussion today?
2: I'm on the committee that I want to be on. I'm on Appropriations, and I learned a long time ago there are two types of legislators they're appropriators and then there's everybody else (laughs) spoken
1: like a true appropriator
2: (laughs) (laughs) so i'm I'm exactly where i want to be now i might have to wait a while to get on hack d the defense subcommittee but appropriations is exactly where i want to be and you know what i'm blessed to be on this committee because you have a lot of adults in the room across the, the spectrum that ultimately can sit down have a conversation and work through things that difficult issues like getting an Omnibus, getting a budget passed. I'm grateful I'm not on a committee like judicial or something like that, where you just kind of have shirts and skins and go to war at each other uh, every single time. Uh, The second question was... Just last thoughts. Yeah, yeah, last uh, thoughts on everybody. Yeah, yeah. No, my, my thoughts are this is, look, everybody could be doing something else this past hour. We all could be, we're all busy people, could be doing something else. But here you are engaging And people forget showing up is 90 percent of things. So I would just say continue to be engaged, continue to show up and continue to hold people accountable. I mean, we can't just point and laugh and scream and say the country's going to hell and everyone's getting crazy and going into their camps like we have to fight and we got to work through it all. And I think part of that, the only way we get through this is realizing as Americans, we have more in common than we don't. We can be different. We can be passionate about the things we're passionate about, but we should be respectful of one another. We have more in common than we don't and be engaged, hold people accountable.
0: That concludes today's conversation. Again, huge thanks to Congressman Gonzalez, to our audience for their questions, and most of all to you for being here. Like all of our episodes, this is an edited version of a much longer conversation that was taped live with audience questions. For information on how to join us, past episodes and more, please visit our website, pm101.live. Please also take two seconds to subscribe on whichever streaming service you're using right now so you don't miss our next episode on Monday featuring Michael Kugelman, who's an expert on Pakistan, Afghanistan and India's relationships with the United States at the Wilson Center. This has been Politics Media 101, produced in partnership with Clubhouse. Wherever you are in the world, thank you very much for being a part of this community. I'm Jeff Browning. On behalf of Justin Higgins and John Gunnison, our co-founders, we hope to hear from you soon.